0: Hi, welcome to Lights, Camera, Author. I'm Jim Juno, and this is the podcast where we talk to authors who write books about movies, television, uh, entertainment, Hollywood in general, and anything else in between. And I have with me now uh, a gentleman who was on the show a few years ago. I didn't realize i have been doing the show that long until we talked <laughs> in, pre- in pre-show. Uh, his name is Dwayne Epstein, and he has a new book coming out. It's released in April. And it's going to be called Killing Generals, The Making of the Dirty Dozen, the most iconic World War II movie of all time. Welcome, Dwayne. Thank you, Jim. (laughs)
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. It's been a while, hasn't it?
0: Yeah. The last What was the last book we talked about? Refresh my Um, memory.
1: It was in 2018, and it was when my um, biography of Lee Marvin came out in paperback.
0: That's right. That's right. Lee Marvin. Yeah. Yeah. And. I tell you what this is and this kind of like piggybacks on it because um mm-hmm. Lee Marvin of course was the star of The Dirty Dozen mm-hmm. and and the sequels that followed um but also this is this movie The Dirty Dozen when it was first released in 1967 Yep um the critics did not like it. I mean, they did not. They didn't give it rosy reviews, did they?
1: Well, in fairness, I would say it got the definition of mixed reviews. Some, okay. some hated it. Um, one of my favorite quotes, which is uh, one of the chapter titles, is from Bosley Crowther of the New York Times, Crowther, who called it a spirit, a spirit of hooliganism unseen in American cinema. Um, which is a great phrase. And he, he didn't like the movie at all, but some did. Richard Schickel praised it of, uh, I believe he was writing for Life magazine at the time, and several others did. Variety, uh, which usually judges the, um, the value or, or loss of a film's uh, propensity to do well, usually on the box office, they said this had all the makings of a smash, and they were right. Yeah, because
0: it I was it, it was the biggest money maker, I believe, uh, was the, biggest the money maker of the year. Yeah. And this was a year yeah. that had, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't uh, Bonnie and Clyde. Yes, indeed. At least that same year. And, um,
1: uh, and. Cool Hand Luke. Cool Hand uh, Luke. And yeah, Uh, uh guess she's coming to dinner. Uh, right. 67 night. Was, yeah. Yeah. Um, a 67 lot of seven was. A,
0: yeah, it was a banner year for movies. And yeah. um, there, go ahead.
1: No, no, I was just going to say it It was a banner year for uh, 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 like for an overused cliche, a cliche, it was a sea change in American filmmaking um, because it was at the time the production code had finally come into effect where they had the uh, G, M rating, R rating, X rating. That was, I believe it was either the first year or the first full year that they had started to do that, which allowed for a greater amount of, Um, things to be done on film that hadn't been done before. Uh, The studio system was a dinosaur, so uh, filmmakers could now do things they had never done, and it showed on screen. I mean, granted, it kept going throughout the decade of the 60s and into the early 70s, but it pretty much started with 67. And an example of that would be The Dirty Dozen. I mean, the director, Robert Aldridge, got a lot of uh, flack for how violent the film was for its day. Now, it may not seem as violent now when you see it on cable or what have you, but mm-hmm. that aside, it still packs a wallop. It's still an impressive film.
0: Well, at the time, also, this was also really one of the first films which showed American GIs doing some unsavory
1: things. Exactly. You yeah. know, the rumor is that that's why John Wayne had turned it down. Yeah, Um, that's because he was offered the lead. There was actually more to the reason why he turned it down. It wasn't just that the perception of innocent um, um, civilians were killed at the end of the film. And by the way, whether you consider women who are hanging out with Nazis to be innocent, that's also a subjective thing. I mean, some (laughs) people would say they got what they had coming. Who knows? But he also did John Wayne. Because I discovered a memo he, he wrote to producers after he had read the script. And John Wayne also didn't like the uh, what the film, the feel of the film was. He, he found it to be incredibly antisocial. He went so far as to call it anti-American. And one of my favorite quotes of his was that he had told the producer that whoever wrote this script is probably one of those guys walking around with long hair and sandals and and protesting the war when they should be doing the fighting themselves. Now, what's interesting mm-hmm. is the script was written by a man who was 67 years old. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Nunnally Johnson.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Nunnally Johnson, who actually wrote Marx Brothers movies back in the day.
1: I'm not sure. Yeah, I think he did, but I'm not positive about that. But he also wrote. You know, he almost didn't get the gig because he was friends with the producer, Ken Hyman, and Ken Hyman wanted to hire him. And the studio execs were like, yeah, but this guy writes comedies. And Ken Hyman had to remind them that he won an Oscar for adapting uh, The Grapes of Wrath. Not not exactly a knee slapper. I mean, (laughs) he he also uh, wrote and directed uh, The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit and a lot of other truly great films
0: yeah and amazingly that you know, like you said, he was, yeah, he was known as a comedy writer, but like you said, he had a lot of great dramatic films to his credit. but also they um not only did John Wayne turn it down, didn't another well-known actor turn it down the, their lead the lead role?
1: Um, there were actors other than John Wayne that were considered, but for one reason or another, uh, I think Burt Lancaster at one point was considered. Um, And and before Robert Aldridge came onto the project, and he came onto the project in a rather ironic way. He 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 tried to option it first, but um, he discovered that MGM beat him to it so he couldn't (laughs) produce it himself. He had to do it through MGM and and Ken Hyman. And when one of the memos Robert Aldridge early on sent Ken Hyman was to to, uh, complain about the fact that John Wayne was even approached. Um, because he had said to Ken Hyman, he said, look, I don't care about his politics. That's his mother's problem. I like him, but he's wrong for this part. now." And he said something along the lines like, I didn't complain to you when you wanted to hire John Wayne. So don't complain to me with my idea, which is he wanted to bring in Lucas Heller to co-write the script, which he did. And it very much pissed off not only Johnson. He wanted to get sole screen credit. And he took oh. it to arbitration with the um, uh, the Writers Guild. And what wound up happening is both names are on the, are on the script and on the uh, screen. But um, that's how uh, that whole thing came about. And I have to oh. tell you, just one, real quick, yeah. in terms of writing this book, I got extremely lucky in that. And I really put it down just just to luck, nothing else, in that, Many of the people involved in the film are no longer with us. Right. Um, and I, uh, because the movie came out almost 60 years ago, and I, I was fortunate enough to discover the producer I just mentioned, Ken Hyman, Kenneth Hyman, um, is still alive um, and living in England. And I interviewed him uh, three times, as a matter of fact. And I got to tell you, it was not an easy thing to do, despite us living in the digital age and the internet and all that comes with it. He had pretty much fallen off the face of the earth in terms of being able to contact him. And I was able to find him strictly by chance because his wife is a photographer. And I, I was looking up anybody and everybody with the name Hyman. And when I saw Carolyn Hyman and she does a, a, a dog rescue thing in England, wonderful lady. And I, I, I found her through another website and I asked her, I said, are you the Carolyn Hyman married to Ken Hyman or Kenneth Hyman? And she says, as a matter of fact, I am. And it went from there. And as I like to, as I told my publisher when I discovered him, I just simply wrote him an email with a question. How come there's no famous Jewish detectives? Because I was able to I I was able to find him. And he was a wonderful interview. Super nice guy. First thing he said to me, that's why I had to correct myself a moment ago. I referred to him as Mr. Hyman. And he said, Dwayne, you call me Mr. Hyman one more time. I'm hanging up the phone. My name is Ken. Call me Ken. <laughs> so that's that shows what a cool guy he was.
0: He was. I mean, that sounds great. I mean, it's like, you know, and. You mentioned like, you know, all the movies that came out. I mean, another one was, uh, was the graduate that came out this year. It was, oh yes. Oh, I'm okay.
1: sorry. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. A, that was another groundbreaking film for its time. Definitely.
0: And you know, the thing that, and the people who starred in this film, they, they would, they weren't, well, they were well known, but one person stood out was, um, of course, James Brown, who, uh, yep. was known as a football player. Yep. And of course, legendary football player for the Cleveland Browns. Mm-hmm. And, um, he uh, but, you know, that was something which well, how was that casting going? Because that well, that was it was a black character in the book. What did what the, uh, well, but the producers didn't want or they would they didn't want the part to be that big or something like that?
1: Well, no, it wasn't so much that it was just that um, there, there are a lot. I've, I've got several chapters in the book on the casting alone, because some of the mm-hmm. uh, choices that they were going to go with for the supporting players were very interesting and didn't come to pass. And the ones that did come to pass, it wound up, even though many of these people I'm talking about were known to audiences, but they were veteran actors and not quite in the major star strata, for lack of a better way to put it. But the Dirty Dozen put them there. Charles Bronson, uh, Donald Sutherland, Jim Brown, um, Clint Walker, Terry Savalas, yeah. A lot lot of uh, wonderful careers got started with this film, launched with this film. I mean, they had been working in films before. Now, for Jim Brown, even he, it wasn't his first film either. He had been in a Western a year or two before called Rio Conchos. And the most interesting thing about Jim Brown and the Dirty Dozen was he retired after nine years in the NFL while making the Dirty Dozen. He held a press conference and he pretty much said, I'm done. This is it. Yeah, it's interesting. He was uh, 28 years old when he did it. He looked a little older just because he's such a big man, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, the NFL said you need to report to camp or else we're gonna fine you and suspend you and all that good stuff. That's right. And he he basically just said, I quit. I'm not well, you know, I yeah. retire.
1: It's interesting. He's a rather controversial figure in some ways, but in other ways, um a lot of things of what he said and did made perfect sense. Apparently, At the time the film was in production and it ran over budget and over schedule, the schedule um, running over schedule was often given as the primary reason Jim Brown quit football, but there was actually more to it than that. There was a great story. Robert Ryan's son told me that when um, they were making the movie, Jim Brown and Robert Ryan became friends during the making of the movie. And Robert Ryan later told his son um, that one of the things that impressed him the most was while they were talking, Jim Brown, probably all along was going to quit the NFL. He had taken so many hits and and bruised so much. He took, he took his shirt off and showed Robert Ryan, all the bruises all over his body. And Robert Mm -hmm. Ryan, who had been a golden gloves boxer in college was really impressed by that. I mean, he was, Robert Ryan was like, I'd quit too. If I were you, Jim. And the entire summer, That the movie because the movie began filming, I think, in September of the previous year, and it went into almost the fall of the next year. It was it was supposed to go six months. It wound up going like nine to ten months in filming. Now, from the very beginning, sports writers at the time were just I mean, it was a feeding frenzy for them in terms of whether or not Jim Brown is going to be able to play the next season, the 67th season with the Browns. What they, and I discovered this. What they failed to notice was there was a little hint as to what he was going to do long before they started uh, speculating. But the reason why they didn't know it was because it was in an African American newspaper called the Los Angeles Sentinel, where he wrote a piece called "Why I'm Quitting Football," and <laughs> yeah, nobody read it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that's what that. I like. mean. And that was, you know, I imagine a lot of a lot of African American clientele uh, of the Los Angeles area read it. But yeah, that was before right. the internet. That was before before YouTube or before uh, Google. Any, or digital? Anything digital? Yeah, like yeah. That.
1: absolutely. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I I discovered some wonderful, wonderful stories, which is one of the main reasons why I wrote this book. Was I I well, first of all, the main reason was I've always been a fan. i I've, I've loved the movie since the first time I saw it, and. I got lucky, not just in finding Ken Hyman, but I was able to make contact with Donald Sutherland and interviewed him. That was my um, next question.
0: I was going to, yeah. That, what was it like? I mean, Donald Sutherland always made a career out of playing uh, oddball characters. Yeah, we bet you betcha. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what was he like? I mean, what was he like talking to him?
1: Well, here's the thing. I never spoke to him, but I was able to access any information from him through through emails. Um, I found his publicist, his publicist said, uh, send me some questions and I'll send them to Mr. Sutherland. And he sent them back and his answers were very much like you would expect Donald Sutherland to respond with. And, and, you know, I could, I quoted everything he said to me and they're all in the book and they're in the proper order thematically. And he was very funny and very, Strange. <laughs> no way I'm, to say it.
0: Because in his role uh, uh, of the soldier, who for those of you who have not seen the Dirty Dozen, go ahead and rent it or whatever you do, you know, however you watch your movies. Because it's a great one. It's a great movie. But two, the par- the performances in it by all the all the the stars and supporting characters were are just great. And Donald Sutherland is reviewing the troops. He's posing as a general. <laughs> and, Great scene And he asked, the, he asked the guy Where are you from And the guy goes I'm from Ohio or,
1: I'm, I'm from, from Madison Ohio. City, Missouri, sir there, That's what it is Yeah, and he goes I've never heard of it <laughs> Never heard of it <laughs> But Great that was story very- real quick he, was just, he wasn't supposed to do that scene Actually That was meant yeah. for that was meant for Clint Walker, and during rehe- uh, um, the readings, uh, the script readings that they did, Clint Walker took exception to it, saying, "Playing a Native American, he thought it would be—he he thought it would be beneath the character to do that." And Robert Aldridge looked around the big table, saw Donald Sutherland, and went, "Hey, you with the big ears, you do it." <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was Donald Sutherland telling me that. So that's how he wound up doing it. He really created that entire character he had almost no lines when he read the script he you know his one line was number two sir but <laughs> as 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 the reading and the rehearsal progressed he turned in one hell of a performance as a matter of fact he knew it too because what he did was his age he talked his agent into getting that clip of him uh um addressing i mean inspecting the troops and sent it to robert altman because Robert Altman didn't want to consider Donald Sutherland for MASH because he didn't think he could do comedy at the time, when he saw that <clears throat> clip, Donald Sutherland got the part of Hawkeye Pierce in MASH.
0: In the movie MASH, yes, and yep. he also had a he also had a similar character in uh, Kelly's Kelly Heroes.
1: Yeah, Oddball.
0: Oddball, yeah, that's what goes oh. back to Oddball characters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah
1: he, exactly. He's my favorite thing in that movie. He's hysterical. Which one <laughs> of these negative waves. <laughs>
0: <laughs> negative energy man that's like Yeah, like um you gotta let me ask you some of the people who turned down roles besides john wayne um was uh oh gosh what was he, he was in he was in city slickers oh gosh what was uh, oh jack palance jack Palance, yeah jack Palance.
1: yeah, he yeah that's a good story too um they wanted him to play maggot the tell his Savalas part and he he was all ready to sign the He's a very. He was a very strange man. I had met him a few times hmm. and when I was working on the Lee Marvin book. And he apparently had been doing a stage play in Anaheim. And the day he was supposed to sign the contract, it was the last day of the play he was doing. And he did a curtain speech at the end of the play. And the speech consisted of him condemning the part they wanted him to play, condemning uh, um, everything about the script and we shouldn't be making movies with racism in in them anymore. Mm. And he ended the speech by going, and more importantly, what the hell am I doing in a dump like Anaheim, California? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, Was was, he sober?
1: (laughs) uh, Yeah. Strangely enough. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Very strange guy.
0: (laughs) Trini Um, Lopez, Um, his character.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I am dying. I am dying to tell the story of what happened to him in the movie, but I really want people to read it. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't I know it's empty, but yeah. it's also another one of my favorite stories. I've got to tell you, too. In ter- oh, I'm sorry.
0: Go ahead. No, I don't want to give away any spoilers either.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. I just want to say I got for fans of the movie or people who might even be slightly interested or just want to know about this movie they had heard about but never seen – I got extremely lucky, once again, by getting some major, major exclusives that people never knew or never heard of and are blown away by. One of them being, when I wrote Lee Marvin Point Blank, one of my favorite interviews was with a gentleman named Bob Phillips, who most people don't know, and, but he had a very, very, very fascinating resume. And he's in the movie as the character Corporal Morgan. He's one of the MPs. But he had another much more important role in the film which is to be Lee Marvin's, Ken Hyman called him a bodyguard, but in truth, he was Lee Marvin's babysitter. So he had to make sure Lee Marvin didn't get too drunk on days they were going to work and showed up sober and all like that. And in so doing, much of, I mean, a good portion of what he told me went into my, my Lee Marvin bio. However, I spent the entire day with him and he told me stories about the making of the movie that didn't go into the Lee Marvin bio, but is definitely in this book about the dirty dozen and the stories will blow you away. He, was an ama- <laughs> he witnessed some amazing things and participated in some amazing things. Also, I have a friend who's also an author, sweet lady, Beverly Gray. She wrote a book about the making of the graduate called seduced by Mrs. Robinson. And as luck would have it, when I had mentioned to her that I was going to work on a book on the Dirty Dozen, she told me, listen, I did an interview with E.M. Nathanson, the author of the original novel. He passed away in 2016. Do you want the interview? It's never been published.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Beverly. Oh, my God. Do I want the interview? And (laughs) she gave it to me. And I transcribed the whole thing. And pretty much everything he told her is in the book. So I got a lot of great exclusives.
0: There was a lot of, well, I don't want to say a lot, but there was there was a fair amount of ad-libbing in the movie, wasn't there?
1: Well, I wouldn't call it ad-libbing so much as things worked out before they started rolling the camera. Um, Robert Aldridge was a very interesting man, and, and in my opinion, criminally underrated as a director. He was a wonderful, wonderful director. And one of the things he famously would do, he wrote an article for the LA Times called How to Put a Cast at Ease, and what he does with um his cast and crew before filming begins and it, and he did exactly what he wrote in the article from what i had heard from other people who had worked on the film and that he did a very rare thing that isn't done that often in hollywood he had three weeks rehearsal before the movie began uh, before they started filming now that's a lot of time sometimes depending on the uh, budget or 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 location excuse me or cast of a given film they barely have like a day or two or sometimes <laughs> at most, at most a week. He gave them like three weeks. And within that three weeks, he, and it's a photo that's going to be in the book. It was a, um, when, when they did the table reading the first time it was in the um, oh, Pinewood studios, I think the sound stage. and they had this yeah. long green table with the entire cast around the table, each with their own um, um, bound copy of the script. And they would go through it for, you know, days and weeks on end. And and in so doing, things got changed, not just um, the dialogue, but um, who did what. And that's how Donald Sutherland wound up being the guy to inspect the troops. And there were on occasion, which is where Trini Lopez comes in, where I have a copy of the original script, and there are dated script changes from, like, um, when the script was first written and the changes that Lucas Heller put in up until sometimes a day or two before a scene was shot. And that was mostly had to do with what happened to Trini Lopez, as well as this part of the script, the printed script, says details will be done on site because there's too much going on to write this down. So a lot of that finale, that big finale, that yeah. wasn't scripted. That was just, we're at the chateau. We're here. We're going to kill a lot of Nazis. Let's figure out how we're going to shoot it. And that was pretty much the way the script was.
0: Now there is one name which we have not mentioned. I really want to get him in. This is Charles Bronson. Um, Absolutely. You know, and I don't. Again, I don't want to give away any spoilers or anything like that if you haven't seen <laughs> okay. the movie. But um, Bronson, did he want to do the movie? I mean, he. he or did he not want to cut his hair? Is what I heard, or something like well, that. Well,
1: that, yeah, that's one story that um, is true. He didn't want to cut his hair, and one of the things about a guy like this is a version Donald Sutherland told me too. One of the things about Robert Aldridge, he could be very patient and he could be very understanding to a point. If you take him to a point where he doesn't want to back off, look out. <laughs> Robert Aldridge <laughs> could be one mean guy. Uh, Ken Hyman told me the same. And and, uh, and, you know, and Ken Hyman was Aldridge's boss. He was the producer of the film, but they, they butted heads. But Ken Hyman told me he also loved Robert Aldridge. He thought it was terrific. That was when there were several versions of, I don't know how your listeners uh, uh, feel about rough language, but instead of telling you, hey. okay, well, <laughs> I, well it, it's good to know. Yes. Instead of telling you the run in Bronson had with Robert Aldridge about his hair, I set that story up in the book with a story I got from Eddie Albert, who's not in the Dirty Dozen, but he did make about four or five films with Robert Aldrich, and he knew him well, and he loved him. And when they made a movie in the late 50s called Attack, which also co-starred Lee Marvin, um, there was an actor during rehearsal who showed up late. First time he did that, Aldrich didn't say a word. Second time he did it, he just told everybody in assembly, uh, everybody assembled, um, and this actor was like 20 minutes late. He said, we have a responsibility here, and our responsibility is to show up on time, okay? Next day, the same actor did it again, only he was oh. even a later. They did the run-through of what they were supposed to do, and at the end, Robert Aldridge said, let's all be professional here. And, and this is from Eddie Albert. Who said? Now keep in mind, Eddie Albert told me the story, and this is Oliver Douglas from the Green from Green Acres, right? Sweet little yeah. place that comes. Eddie Albert related the story to me, where he said after he was done saying what he said, Robert Aldridge pointed at that actor and yelled at him and said, if you're late one more time, you son of a bitch, I'm going to kick the living shit out of you. (laughs) 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 And that actor was never late again. (laughs) (laughs) And that's pretty much along the lines of what Aldridge said to Bronson, except he did it differently. He wanted everybody to have haircuts that at least looked like it was 1945, right? Yes. When the film takes place. Bronson didn't cut his hair. Bronson had a kind of a weird. This is the way Donald Sutherland put it to me. He had a kind of a weird DA. You know what a DA is?
0: And then ducktail. Bingo. Okay. But I'm old. Yeah. yeah.
1: And. He uh, he mentioned to, Br- well, he didn't mention to Bronson. He did it again to everybody assembled. to the- He goes, when we show up tomorrow, I want everybody to have a regulation military haircut circa 1945. Bronson showed up. He didn't get his haircut. And <laughs> I love that he did this. Robert Aldridge picked up the phone, made a long distance call, and then held the phone out to Bronson and went, Charlie, it's your lawyer in L.A. He said, he- if you don't get a haircut, he's going to come out here and do it for you. So what shall it be? Bronchin <laughs> got a haircut the next day. The <laughs> next day, <laughs> <laughs> and well, here I did. I ruined it myself. I said I was going to tell you the story, and I went ahead and told. It. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
0: so glad you did, though. The man's name is Dwayne Epstein, and the book is Killing Generals: The Making of the Dirty Dozen, the most iconic World War II movie of all time. Dwayne, again, thank you for coming back on the Light Camera, author.
1: Oh my pleasure! And just as you said at the um, at the top of the show, the book comes out April twenty fifth of this year, and it's available now for pre order on Amazon. And from what I understand, if you purchase it prior to the uh, pre order day, I mean, in the publication date you get one hell of a discount. I think it's going, it's oh, the hardcover is going for 28 bucks, but I think the pre-order discount is like $10. So that's really impressive.
0: Oh, that's a, that is a great. Yeah. So, so go to Amazon, order it now. Absolutely. Again, Killing Generals by Dwayne Epstein. Again, thank you again, Dwayne.
1: Oh, thank you for having me, Jim. I appreciate it.